So uh, church discipline, obviously one of the key texts here is Matthew chapter 18. Uh, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him only, alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two, or, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For there where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Uh, as we talk about the category of discipline, uh, this is not something that is unique to, to the church and its saints and membership. This is something the Lord expresses to us. Uh, Hebrews 12, 6 and 7. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that the father, uh, whom his father does not discipline? That's a great uh, guiding text as we're thinking about uh, practicing when necessary church discipline that this is not out of spite, it's not out of harshness, it's not out of uh, disdain for the person. Uh, just as the Lord disciplines the one he loves, so we exercise church discipline on his behalf as elders and authority in a church um, because we love the people whom um, we have the privilege to oversee. First Thessalonians 5.14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. This is a uh, Gucci Bribri's uh, contribution earlier on the reference here. Thank you. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And the Westminster Confession says this about church discipline. Church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring of others from the like offenses, for purging out that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God, which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned, notorious, and obstinate offenders. That's a great, that's a great capturing of the reasons for church discipline. Uh, deter, uh, reclaiming, deterring others, purging out, uh, vindicating the honor of Christ, preventing the wrath of God. So, um, as we're looking at this, the goals of church discipline, as we uh, have people who, who do uh, profane and are notorious and obstinate offenders, according to the Westminster Confession, what are we trying to accomplish in that? Uh, as we enact church discipline and walk through a process of trying to win back a sinner, what's the goal? Greg Allison says this, church discipline may be defined as a proleptic or an anticipatory and a declarative sign of the divine eschatological judgment meted out by Jesus Christ through the church against its sinful members and sin, sinful situations. So it's uh, an anticipatory and declarative sign of uh, eschatological judgment. 
Uh, Greg Allison also says this, the nature of the pronouncement made by the church, even a verdict rendered according to these biblical instructives, instructions and supported by the promise of Christ is not, indeed cannot be, infallible. While the church possesses authority to exercise discipline, its authority is nonetheless and always a delegated authority. It comes from Christ to his church. Only his judgment is perfect and true. Only his eschatological judgment will be definitive. Indeed, because the church in this present age is still a sinful assembly in the midst of a sinful reality, it may not get its discipline right. As it exercises discipline, the church makes a declaration, not a definitive pronouncement. So at the end of the day, the church is faithful to practice because we've been called to practice church discipline, yet we do it in a way that's humble, that fears the Lord, and ultimately knows that even though we're making a statement uh, through the category of pronouncing eschatological judgment, we're not doing that in a definitive proclamatory way. We're doing it in a way that's in, uh, underneath the ultimate authority and judgment to be meted out and rendered by Christ as the head of the church. So <clears throat> that's some intro around the goals of discipline. Some specifics around why we practice discipline in the church is uh, to glorify God by obedience to his word. And we want to glorify God by obeying his word. Revelation 22, 18 and 19 says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So the reason why we practice church discipline is because Christ in his word has called us to faithfully try and win back sinners through the means of discipline and us taking away that reality, which I fear a lot, many churches, whether tangibly or practically, have done by not having a category for or practicing the, uh, the, uh, the practice of church discipline, the mark of the church of church discipline, is they are in danger of falling in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, of taking away the words of this book and not living by them. So another reason why we, uh, the goal of uh, church discipline is to main our maintain our testimony in the honor of Christ. So Romans 12, uh, 2.24, uh, it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. How, how relatable is this to so many modern day churches, so many ancient churches too, it would appear, that there were people in their midst who practiced blatant sin and the outside world looked and said, what in the world is special about your gathering as a quote-unquote holy place in the fear of God when you guys let everything happen that's underneath you? And so as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Lord, let that not be so of us. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. You'd see kind of a correlation here between Paul and Peter and, and wanting the, the reputation and the holiness and the, the contrasting element of the church being the salt and light to the world to, to how the Gentiles live and act. You can see that here. First uh, Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
See how those two things kind of partnered together? That the Gentiles looked at the church um, in, in, uh, that Paul was referencing in Romans 2 and blasphemed God uh, because, because of practices. And in 1 Peter 2, he's saying, as, as, as people look into the church and see your ways, let them see that you have good deeds and actually glorify God because of the reputation of the church um, upon the day of visitation. John MacArthur says this, Yet if one thing characterizes the contemporary church, it's a lack of integrity in the matter of holiness. While churches affirm the authority of Scripture and identify what is sinful, they utterly fail in the responsibility of enforcing that affirmation in the life of the body. So while they might be able to recognize what is sinful, do they have any practice and hold any kind of responsibility in enforcing that affirmation of what sin is in the life of the body of their church? So a goal of the church is to maintain our testimony and to honor Christ. Another goal is to maintain the purity of the church. 1 Corinthians 5, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you uh, really are as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Hebrews 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Listen, as we're looking to practice church discipline, the reason we do that is, is protecting. We're going to talk uh, this afternoon about how an elder protects the sheep. One of the ways, one of the key ways, one of the ways given by Christ to protect the sheep is to have a process in place that can remove leaven that infects the whole lump, to remove a root of bitterness that, that defiles the entire, uh, the entire tree. And in so doing, another goal is that it deters others from sinning. So Ecclesiastes 8.11 says this, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. When they see that someone can do evil at any point and there's no expediency in executing judgment against that evil, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. We want to prevent that. 1 Timothy 5.20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. We want people to have a legitimate category of, uh, of, of being afraid to, uh, to practice sin. Uh, that, that's a, a healthy thing in a lot of cases. Um, Jay Adams says this, If words from the pulpit are not enforced by action from the congregation and the elders... Members, members will learn that the church does not really mean what it says. They may learn facts about uh, for the next Bible quiz, but do not know how to observe or obey Christ's commands. So if the words from the pulpit are not enforced by the actions from your congregation and from the elders, members, members will learn that the church does not really mean what it says. So we want to be a church that means what it says. And Wayne Grudem. If discipline against one specific offense is not carried out, then it will be much more difficult for the church to carry out discipline if a similar kind of sin is committed by someone else in the future. We can really be in a spot where we're on a slippery slope if we're, we're very passive and hesitant to exercise church discipline, 
when we really feel pressed, convicted, led to, uh, to, to operate in that means for the good of winning back that brother, if we're hesitant, it creates precedence for, uh, for us to be hesitant again. And then it creates precedence for someone to see that hesitancy and, and not fear practicing the same sin. And you can see how that all of a sudden spirals into something where our church doesn't look like a church anymore. Holiness is not a category that people would say that, they, uh, that would mark our congregation. And ultimately, we're also looking to restore sinners. So the process should not be seen as negative or a reflection of failure. It is not a last-ditch uh, measure, but a prescribed means of grace. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And James 5.20 says, let him, uh, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So our goals in church discipline, fellas, is to glorify God by obeying his word, to maintain our testimony, to maintain the purity of the church, and to deter others from sin- sinning and ultimately, it's, it's to restore sinners. Uh, how sweet it is, how sweet it must have been, I mean, we'll talk more about this in a minute, but for the sinner in 1 Corinthians 5, who, was, uh, who the church was celebrating this sort of freedom of his uh, sexual liberties with what appears to be his mother-in-law, Paul's strong exhortations to send him away, and then we get back into uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6 or 2 Corinthians 8, um, where he's being restored. Um, how sweet that must be. I mean, they were hesitant. They needed rebuke in that. Um, what does it say? Um, they needed rebuke in how they brought him back into the fold. Uh, but, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, chapter, 2 Corinthians 2, um, 5 through 11, when that, when that brother's brought back in. Um, uh, yeah, so you should rather, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or maybe be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. H- how sweet it must have been for a man who's excommunicated because of his sin, uh, what, what it looks like repents and comes back into the church from them practicing excommunication and treating him as an unbeliever. Um, I, one hopes and trusts that the church of Corinth takes Paul's words and actually restores their love for him. Him coming back into the fold of the church, uh, restored and seen as a brother of Christ, um, that, that's what we're hoping for. We're hoping for sin to be rooted out, and for sinners to come and have a deeper appreciation for the forgiveness of God and the love of the church through hard means. So, reasons for discipline. Um, uh, so, a couple of textual considerations here that, you know, if your brother sins against you. Um, Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in a transgression. Um, so, th- there could be a number of things here that, uh, we, we want to wisely think through, is this, are, are we enacting church discipline anytime anyone sins at all? Um, no, <laughs> we're not. Uh, guys, spoiler, 
we're, we're all sinners. Uh, each, each one of us sin pretty frequently, actually, um, and, and hopefully less and less so as we uh, come to, to see Christ for who he is and our sins for what they are. But um, I think as we look, we want to be able to, and we'll get to this in a second, see what kinds of reasons we're actually enacting church discipline for. And we need wisdom in that. Um, so there's a lot of sin lists that I put in here. Romans uh, 1, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Galatians 5, 2 Timothy 3, um, Revelation 21. You kind of list out a, a number of different categories of sin, right? Um, but I, I think that in general, sins that require church disciplines are one that are public. They're, they're outward sins, so they're behavioral sins that are public and outward, uh, they're serious, and they're unrepentant, okay? And so, again, we need, we need a number of categories there of what, of what that's going to look like. We need to be familiar with the doctrine of sin. Um, but uh, we're, and so another category as we look at this is the church has both a category of restoring sinners uh, and meeting them personally to discuss areas that, you know, Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you or if your brother sins, uh, go to him in private. Okay, that needs to look like something. But is that formal church discipline? No, I don't think so. I think that's the life of Christ living, uh, the body of Christ living together. Um, Galatians 6.1, if anyone's caught in transgression, go and restore him in spirit of gentleness. Um, this is just calling us to do normal life with other sinners in a way that looks towards their sanctification and growth. Um, and the Bible also talks about overlooking offenses, too. So as we look to restore sinners uh, and, and, and confront people in their sin and talk to them about where they've transgressed and where you've been offended, the Bible also has a legitimate category for the fact that we as Christians are to overlook offenses as well. So we're wanting to find a biblically accurate, pastorally sensitive balancing act here of what does that look like to both pursue and, and, and correct and to overlook uh, uh, offenses. So I, I wrote on here, do, do I go to my brother about every little offense or sin? No, you don't. If you become someone that anytime you feel roughly slighted or, or you felt like someone sinned against you in some way and every time you feel that way, you're coming and approaching them, uh, I don't think that's what the Bible has in view. Uh, it looks like something. We have Galatians 6.1. We have Matthew 18. We have other texts about going and, and confronting and exhorting and correcting. But it doesn't look like every little thing. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Are you having a category for it's a glory to overlook an offense? Uh, for you single brothers, for you married brothers as well, um, in marriage, this is going to be very helpful. You're going to want your spouse, your wife, to have this as a category because you bring a lot of sin to the table as a husband. I, I want my wife to have the category of good sense makes one slow to anger. Uh, when I leave dirty clothes on the bathroom floor yet again, I, I, I would love my wife, and she, she does this. She's to be commended for this. Uh, she's good sense makes her slow to anger. Um, when uh, I say something insensitive yet again, it is her glory to overlook an offense. 
Husbands, this should be a category that you've got. Um, and in the church, obviously we're talking about church discipline. In the church, this has to be a category that, that we have. What does it look like to overlook an offense? Uh, okay, process for discipline. So uh, I'm sure you guys walked through this quite a bit. Uh, step one, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And <coughs> uh, Lankon uh, here is a strong verb of tell him his fault. It could be translated as reprove, uh, bring to light, expose, convict, convince. Um, when we're going to him, this isn't kind of vague, hey, I, you know, is everything okay? Um, we're coming and saying, hey, I, I, I've seen this, or I heard that you did this, or hey, when you said this to me or did this to our family, um, you know, he, here's what I saw on that. You're, you're bringing something specific. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Uh, this happens all the time, as we've talked about, on just addressing one another, Galatians 6.1, uh, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is not church discipline. Now, it's the first step in leading towards church discipline, but this in and of itself is not church discipline. So go to your brother if he sins, show your brother his fault or sister. Um, the idea seems to be to keep the matter as narrow as possible. Uh, we're endeavoring to win your brother or sister back from their sin that could turn into something more. So we're trying to correct, bring them back in to a spot where those don't become patterns or habits that, that grow into more and more. Step two, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witness. J. Carl Laney, uh, I actually think... Um, that this, uh, he, he wrote a book called The Textbook for Church Discipline, so, or Guidebook to Church Discipline. Um, so maybe, Abby, that he's got all of the, just in this situation you do and this you don't. I, I don't think so, though. Um, the word listen sometimes connotates or connotes more than the idea of merely hearing with the ear. It may take the stronger nuance to agree, follow, heed, or obey. That seems to be the sense of the word here in verse 16. Um, so if he, if he doesn't listen, if he doesn't, uh, agree to follow, obey, uh, if there's no change in what you're bringing, uh, in the first step one, then we want to bring other people with him. If there's persistence and not even an acknowledgement that there's probably truth there, um, then we're at stage two. Jay Adams says this, at each point, a refusal of one or the other parties to listen is the operative factor that moves the course of discipline along to the next stage. The matter, therefore, is not arbitrary, but it does require a judgment call. This is where wisdom comes in. A judgment call as to when such a stage has been reached. Refusal to listen would involve an unwillingness on the part of one or both parties to continue to speak and act in a way that are calculated to bring about reconciliation. Let me say that sentence one more time. Refusal to listen, that, that again, he said, is what progresses the stages of discipline forward. So refusal to listen would involve an unwillingness on the part of one or both parties to continue to speak and act in ways that are calculated to bring about reconciliation. Adequate time must be given. And a sufficient number of, temp, of attempts at reconciliation should be made 
to be certain that it is impossible to get anywhere without advancing to the next step. Except in cases of divisiveness, <coughs> which we'll talk about later, it is always wise to err, if need be, on the side of caution, giving the benefit of the doubt in love. Uh, this is the point where the elders, though, should be aware and involved if they haven't been already. So as you're addressing a brother in their sin, uh, in step one, this is normal church life. Um, no one else really needs to know about it. You just need to go try and win your brother back. Um, if we're at a spot where there just seems to be total callousness, unwillingness to hear, uh, no receptivity at all, um, and we're bringing along others to help in this case, uh, that's really when elders should at least have a category of what's happening. It uh, doesn't necessarily mean they need to jump in and be involved. We want to see organic life of the church where the one and others of Scripture look like. Uh, those of you who are spiritual, regain your brother. Uh, the church wants, the pastors want to equip their members to do this work. Because listen, pastors can get I mean, busy fast. So as much as possible, you want to think through as you're looking one day, Lord willing, to pastor a church, you want to think, how do I equip the saints for ministry even if they don't hold the office of elder? Um, and so, but in this stage, we at least want to have a category of being aware. Uh, and I'll say this too in practicality. So our church has, uh, every month, we, we meet together. It's not our whole elder team. Um, me, uh, it's, it's probably five of the eight of us or so, four or five of the eight of us. We'll get together for, uh, for a lunch and uh, the, the kind of title that I keep on my calendar is pastoral care lunch. Um, and, and one of the things we do in that lunch, we, we have sort of a, a running document, an agenda, um, and in, in different updates. And so when we sit down, uh, we pray, uh, we entrust the time to the Lord, and then we talk very specifically about pastoral care situations that are taking place. Uh, some of which we're involved in intimately as elders, others of which some of our community group members or others in the church have just made us aware of. And we're talking, hey, what have you seen from this? This is what this community group's report was about uh, this lady in the church. Is that y'all's read on her as well, or do you, do you interpret it a different way? Um, and so we're just trying to make sure that we're knowing our flock. Um, and so one of the ways that elders can know their flock well is to make sure that if things are developing um, that seem to be concerning for a brother or sister in the church, that your pastoral team knows. Step three, if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church, Matthew 18, 17. There's a public rebuke to the gathered church with the hopes that their appeal will win the brother. Again, Jay Adams here, uh, who, who wrote Competent to Counsel, uh, a lot of other counseling books. Uh, he said, the reason why the congregation is told, <coughs> excuse me, is so that as a whole, they may have an opportunity to help the offending, willful brother or sister come to repentance. Um, at the end of the day, we're bringing in the church, telling them a hard fact, um, and we can talk more about what details to share, what not to share. You guys probably already covered some of that. Um, but you're doing it for the purpose that now your gathered church is, an aware, is aware, okay, uh, Johnny or Sally is, is really pursuing sin and not responsive to heeding instruction. 
How do we rally around him or her as a church with the hopes of showing care? Like the church is a body of love that's just expressing itself in mutual care, mutual love, mutual serving. And so as this gets shared to the church, the church is, is responding by going, we, we, we don't want them to sin anymore. And so someone that they don't know very well is coming and saying, hey, can, can I bring you dinner? Oh, that's interesting. I, I was just rebuked in front of the entire congregation and your response is not to shun me, but to bring me dinner. Um, somebody else comes and says, hey, can, I, I'd love to hear more. Uh, and I'd love to care if I can in any way. Um, do you have coffee, a, a morning open for coffee sometime this week? Do you, do you see how this step three is a wonderfully compelling way for the church to come alongside in love to restore a sinner? If they're persisting in sin and they're not listening to the one person, they're not listening to the two, three, or four people over and over and they're hard, a whole body of the church coming alongside, with, uh, totally understanding what the situation is, but rallying to care for that person, do you see how that's a means of grace that can, that can provoke them to say, oh, this church loves me and wants what's best for me. Let me, let me humbly bring my sin to the table here. Um, that was, that was a bit of a rabbit trail there. But uh, here, here's what the church is doing as this uh, comes. They're praying for the person's repentance. They're appealing to the person to repent. They have faith for the process. They're not self-righteous, and they don't gossip about the situation. That The church is moving in that direction. Finally, though, step four. Um, and if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. J. Carl Laney again. Uh, what is Jesus saying here about unrepentant sinners? He's simply instructing his disciples that they ostracize the impenitent, as is the custom with Gentiles and tax gatherers. In Ecclesiast in Ecclesi ecclesiastical sorry, jargon, this is uh, referred to as excommunication. The word is derived from the Latin ex, so out, uh, communi uh, communico, or, 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 or fellowship, or uh, shared. So they're, they're not in anymore. It refers to cutting, to the cutting off of a person from church membership, from fellowship or communion. No longer may that person share in the activities and privileges of church membership. So our prayer should be for the person's repentance, restoration, uh, not for their protection. Those are the kind of steps through church discipline, which I know you guys just covered. So any questions about that? Good. Uh, let's look at divisiveness then really quickly. Um, how, do, how do you deal with divisiveness? So divisive being that someone has a tendency to cause disagreement or hostility between people. John MacArthur says this, the fictitious person... Um, uh, or the factious person, sorry, the one who calls factions, will not submit to the word or to godly leaders in the church. He has a law to himself and has no concern for spiritual truth or unity. Uh, so positively, the scriptures call us to unify, right? As, as we're thinking about someone being decisive or divisive, uh, the Bible calls us to not be divisive, but to be unified. Ephesians 4, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you be called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But negatively, the Scriptures forbid gossip, slander, scoffing, mocking, unwholesome talk, and any other talk or teaching that divides. So Titus 3, as for a person who stirs up division, divisive person, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for these who cause divisions, divisive person, and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive <coughs> the hearts of the naive. So a divisive person can come in a number of ways. They can come in false teaching. Uh, they can come in uh, gossip and slander. Um, but as we look at uh, false teaching specifically, 1 Timothy 6, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. Hear that divisiveness, even in the language there. And for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That is so rich wording. I love the Bible. Uh, man, the Bible is so great. Um, that just, you can just picture this. You haven't had to have been in church for too long before you either experience a situation like this or you've heard of a situation like this. Someone comes in, and, and maybe it's slander, or maybe it's a different doctrine, which is the situation here. And what's happening is, as they start stirring controversy, quarrels break out. And then all of a sudden, everyone who's around that, this is a great illustration of how small leaven leavens the whole lump. All of a sudden, envy and dissension and slander, evil suspicions. Guys, as pastors, we, we, God forbid... But there will be times where people have suspicions about whether is this person acting in a trustworthy way. Do you see how this is pictured here in 1 Timothy 6? All of a sudden, someone comes in, and they're, they're divisive, they're teaching a doctrine, or they're saying things, or they're bringing lies and slander that all of a sudden produce in the body of Christ dissension and, and suspicion and friction. And, and what once was a body of Christ that, that practiced the one another is now as a body of Christ that's fractured and turning one another. Lord, prevent it. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Um, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That truth accords with godliness. That's what the apostolic teaching is doing. That's what we as a church are looking to do. But as for you, teach what accords to sound doctrine. The point here is that sound doctrine isn't simply systematic theology, uh, systematic theological categories, but it's the application of Scripture in moral and ethical context. So it's a teaching that accords with godliness. So sound doctrine, again, isn't abstract truths. They're truths that produce in the life of the church moral and ethical fruit. So, 
finally here, I know we're uh, pressing right up at time for lunch. As a pastor, we're called to be watchmen, okay? So as we think about church discipline, as we think about categories of sin, as we think about what falls into proclaiming to the church and having them come alongside, uh, how do we protect ourselves against divisiveness, you brothers will be watchmen of your church. Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves, so it's your work, walking in a manner of life worthy of the gospel, um, in which the Holy Spirit has made, and, oh, sorry, this is an important part, uh, to yourselves and to all the flock. Uh, you're paying a, a careful attention to yourself and to all the flock. You're understanding what's happening. Think of a watchman on the wall, understanding what's happening in the distance, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Proverbs 27, 23. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. Listen, there are many dangers that the people of God face. Among them are false doctrine, bad company, temptation, disobedience, distractions, discouragement. A good pastor will keep his eyes open to these dangers among the flock. Hebrews 13, 17. Call to people who are in that flock. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For what are they doing? What are you guys doing as your as your leaders of this church and one day will be leaders of a church as an elder? People follow you, they submit to you, they, they follow your leadership because you're actively keeping watch over their souls. You're a watchman, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In 1 Thessalonians 5:14, yet again. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's what we're wanting to do. We're wanting to be watchmen who, who carry out their task with joy and not with groaning. So many pastors are, are just so tired of dealing with their people's sins. They're so tired of dealing with another case of slander and gossip that they're just... They're weary. They're weary pastors. You talk to them, and they're, they're weary, and they're tired. And, and guys, I, I'm not going to pretend like that, that is not going to happen to you. More than likely, that, that's going to be reality you're facing. But as we cultivate godly principles into our church and instill this into them, have them have categories for fearing the Lord and obeying and living in righteousness and holiness, as we equip others to come alongside and walk with each other to win back a, 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 a sinner with all gentleness. They're doing that life for us. And we're overseeing, we're watchmen, understanding both ourselves and our flock. We're going to do the task of seeing each other provoke one another to holiness, sanctification, with joy. They're following us as we're watching them and we're doing it all with joy. Lord, let that be the case. Let me pray.